How likely is nuclear war in the modern age? This is Brief Before Impact. Hey, welcome everyone. I am Matt Parker. Thanks for joining us. Nearly 70% of Americans surveyed by the American Psychological Association said they are worried the invasion of Ukraine is going to lead to nuclear war and that they fear that we are the beginning stages of World War III. Today's episode is going to talk about a brief history of nuclear weapons, how they've been used in warfare. We're going to also separate the differences between tactical nuclear weapons and strategic nuclear weapons, an important distinction. Lastly, discussing the issue of mutually assured destruction. Going to get into all that after this quick ad break. Let's get to work. All right, welcome back, everyone. So let's go into a brief history of nuclear weapon and how they've been used in warfare starting from the beginning until modern times. So according to the Asia Society organization, the world's first nuclear weapons explosion was on July 16th, 1945 in New Mexico. This was when the United States tested its first nuclear bomb. Not just three weeks later, the world changed. August 6th, 1945, the United States dropped an atomic bomb on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. It killed or wounded nearly 130,000 people. Three days later, the United States bombed Nagasaki. Of the 286,000 people uh, living in the area at the blast, 74,000 were killed and another 75,000 sustained injuries, severe injuries. Japan agreed to an under, unconditional surrender on August 14, 1945. It also resulted in the end of World War II. And now in subsequent years, the United States, the Soviet Union, and Great Britain all conducted several nuclear weapons tests. Just a quick pause. The amount of death that these weapons can exhibit on humanity is astounding. And those were 1945 numbers. It's easy to imagine that we've improved the efficiency of these nuclear weapons moving forward. As I was saying, the United States, Soviet Union, and some other 60 countries have signed a treaty to seek the ends of a nuclear arms race and promote disarmament. This was in July 1968. The Cold War was really ramping up at this point between both the United States and Soviet Union. Now you move forward about three decades, and American and North Korean delegations met in Geneva in the autumn of 1994 to establish a framework to resolve nuclear issues on the Korean Peninsula. Under the agreement, North Korea would sign a treaty on the nonproliferation of nuclear weapons in exchange for U.S. support and building safe nuclear energy facilities and formal assurance against the threat or use of nuclear weapons by the U.S. against North Korea. Now, both sides agreed to take steps towards better political and economic relations. In subsequent years, South Korea and Japan have invested billions to help safe, build safe nuclear energy plants in North Korea. By 2003, North Korea has canceled this and all other international agreements on non-proliferation. North Korea really does see having nuclear weapons as its one strongest, its strongest deterrence against any invasion from an outside power. Moving forward, on May 11, 1998, India shocked the world by exploding three nuclear devices amounting to about six times the destructive power of the American bomb dropped on Hiroshima in 1945. That next day, it tested two more nuclear explosions. The world was stunned when Pakistan 
a longtime enemy of, of India, by the way, has responded with six nuclear arsenal tests of its own. So world leaders admonish these two longtime adversaries in breaking the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which was put into force back in 1970. The U.S. imposed strict economic sanctions against both countries and lobbied for the World Bank, um, for the World Bank International Monetary Fund and other countries to do the same. The sanctions were lifted in 2001 when the U.S. needed Pakistan and India's support to fight al-Qaeda uh, and its terrorist cells in Afghanistan. Now, in 2002, American President George W. Bush named Iran, Iraq, and North Korea as the axis of evil, in part due to its U.S. suspicions of those countries having nuclear, or excuse me, weapons of mass destruction. Now, later that year, unofficial reports suggest that North Korea has confirmed the existence of nuclear arsenals, and intelligence reports indicate that dictatorial power will have enough plutonium to build five or six nuclear bombs by May of 2003. On October 9, 2006, North Korea tested a nuclear weapon with the approximated power of the Hiroshima bomb. North Korea announced to the world that it had become the world's eighth declared nuclear weapons state. Its missiles have hit the range to targets in South Korea, Japan, as well as United States, Chinese, and Russian territories. The United States is the only known country to have missiles with range to attack any target on Earth. But over 30 countries have unmanned planes that are undetected by missile defense systems that can, can carry nuclear, biological, or other weapons of mass destruction. So that last point means that the United States could launch nuclear missiles to anywhere point in the Earth from the United States. That being said, there are countries, 30 to be exact, that could fly unmanned aircraft to deliver those same types of weapons. So this leads us to the list of our declared nuclear states at this point, starting with North Korea, Israel, India, Pakistan, the United Kingdom, China, France, and of course, Russia and the United States. So that kind of catches us up on the history of nuclear weapons and the treaties that are a part of them. We're going to pivot to the different describing the differences between tactical nuclear weapons and strategic nuclear weapons. And this distinction is important because it allows us to understand when a country might utilize a weapon and in what context they would use it. Like in, like in the midst of a war, how would this type of nuclear weapon be uh, implemented for a bigger strategy? So according to IFL Science, since the invasion of Ukraine by Russian forces, there have been speculation about whether Russia would use tactical nuclear weapons against their neighbor. But what exactly are tactical nuclear weapons and how they differ from strategic nuclear weapons, which were like the ones deployed on Hiroshima and Nagasaki during World War II? So strategic nuclear weapons are likely the type that you're most familiar with, if not at least by name. Uh, for, for example, the two bombs dropped in Japan, they were named Fat Man and Little Boy. Those were dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. These are strategic nuclear weapons, and they're designed to be dropped on strategic targets. Generally, they are much larger in yield than tactical nuclear weapons. Strategic nuclear devices are designed to be used for far from you know, battlefields, away from any potential damage to the launching state's civilians or its military. So definitions vary from power to power, but the term strategic nuclear weapons generally refers 
to nuclear devices that can be launched over a high or intercontinental range. So think about strategic is, one, how big the explosion is, and two, how far away they can be launched. So bigger and further away. That's essentially, in in a couple of bullet points, strategic nuclear weapons. They can cause enormous and indiscriminate damage to large areas, although smaller devices, for example, that might be used to take out like an enemy missile silo, they're launched over a long range could be classified as a strategic nuclear weapon, even though they have a smaller yield. So what does that mean in terms of tactical nuclear weapons? Well, they are um, tactical nuclear weapons make up around 30 to 40 percent of American and Russian nuclear arsenals and close to 100 percent of stores in various other countries, meaning the other countries that have nuclear weapons, they're typically tactical in size and ability to create that nuclear yield in terms of its explosion and its power. They are designed for shorter range use than strategic nuclear weapons, including weapons that can't be launched from the air, sea, or ground. These are just meant to be shorter. As with strategic nuclear weapons, the definition differs from country to country, uh, with some, for example, France, who considers all their arsenal to be strategic. uh, They'll define shorter range weapons as strategic rather than tactical. Okay, They are generally, however, smaller than strategic nuclear weapons in terms of payload and are designed to be used for smaller strikes or even attacks on battlefields. So given their short range, they are not intended to cause a widespread nuclear fallout or destruction, either for tactical purposes or in order not to cause damage to their launcher's own side. They can come in the form of short-range missiles, landmines, artillery shells, depth charges, and torpedoes. I want to give an example of how I could see something playing out like in Ukraine if they were to um, experience tactical nuclear weapons. Say there was a valley that was deemed uh, strategically important to Russia in order to deter, I don't know, a NATO advance from Poland. I'm just making up this example. They they, the Russia, then launches a tactical nuclear uh, weapon via an artillery shell into this valley in order to deter NATO troops moving in across that valley. That's the example. It's not meant to destroy, say, a massive metropolitan area, but rather to be very uh, much more of a smaller in size, but still a substantial damage to the area. That is what I would imagine could happen if nuclear war to take place in Ukraine. Again, there have been agreements limiting the power and size of tactical nuclear arsenals of both Russia and the United States, but these weapons are not as regulated as their larger strategic counterparts. Though smaller in their devastation, they are not without their own risk, uh, since they are, in fact, nuclear bombs, not least of which is the chance of escalation. Should they be used on a battlefield? If, for example, Russia does launch a tactical and nuclear weapon, we don't know what the response would be by NATO and Western forces. We know they would respond. We just don't know what that would likely be. This is the escalation uh, we're talking about here. Um, A recent piece uh, from senior fellow at the James Martin Center of Nonproliferation Studies, Niccolo Sakoy, he wrote in a piece saying, in some respects, tactical nuclear weapons are actually more dangerous than strategic weapons. Their small size, vulnerability to theft, 
and perceived usability make the existence of tactical nuclear weapons and national arsenals a risk to global security. And the new perception of the usability of nuclear weapons in both Russia and the United States, albeit for different reasons, could create a dangerous precedent for other countries. I was thinking of an example of like when nuclear deterrence worked, whenever the possibility of a nuclear war was uh, very real in the midst of a military conflict. 1973, Yom Kippur War. This was a war between Israel and Egypt and Syria, and the war resulted in the death of about 25 to 2,700 Israelis and an estimated 10 to 16,000 Arab soldiers, wounding over twice that number. The war itself was conceived by the then Egyptian president Sadat and Syrian leader Assad to recapture the Golan Heights and Sinai, which had been seized by Israeli forces in the humiliating Six-Day War. Now, here's the point of when nuclear weapons came into the equation. Israel was getting beat pretty substantially, and Israel's initial battlefield defeat seemed so severe that on October 9th, Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir ordered Israeli nuclear strike planes and missiles to go on alert. This is kind of like a last-ditch effort because Israel was thinking their entire country was about to be overrun. So when the United States found out this alert went out, it began immediately uh, transferring enormous quantities of just conventional weapons to bolster the Israelis. 72 Phantom and Skyhawk jets, 200 Patton tanks, and then the -the state-of-the-art tow missiles and heavy artillery. Matter of fact, the, the Israelis have a describe what this would be whenever they put their nuclear arsenals at full alert. They call it the Samson option. And it just refers to Israel's deterrent strategy of massive retaliation with nuclear weapons as a last resort against a country whose military has invaded or destroyed much of Israel. So we've discussed those tactical and strategic nuclear weapons, how they could be used and in what context they could be used. Certainly uh, countries that have those smaller arsenals, think about Israel or um, Korea, North Korea, for example, they're strategic in design, meaning they're not going to be able to most likely launch them at a far away target, much more in the context of like a regional uh, war, but they certainly have been used as a deterrence uh, to change the the movement and change the uh, the tempo of a uh, combat between um, between enemies. So, with the history and the differences between these two weapons outlined, how does this play out between like superpowers between the United States and Russia? I want to deep dive into this concept you've perhaps even heard of called mutually assured destruction. What this means in the context of nuclear war and why. We haven't seen nuclear weapons be used in combat since World War II in 1945. So Raymond Smith, writing for War on the Rocks, uh, describes mutual assured destruction, uh, refers to the concept that two superpowers are capable of annihilating each other with nuclear weapons, regardless of whether they are attacked first. So in theory, under mutually assured destruction, a nuclear attack by one superpower will be met with an overwhelming nuclear counterattack by their target. They use early warning systems, automated missiles, airborne nuclear bombs, and missile-armed hidden submarines. This will lead to the complete destruction of both countries. 
as assured by mutual destruction. It's often abbreviated MAD or MAD. It's a part of the military strategy of deterrence in which one adversary threatens another with a reprisal if they attack first. But complete annihilation of an enemy is not the only way MAD comes into play. For instance, rogue states like North Korea or Iran, they're striving to develop nuclear weapons, perhaps in the hope that they will be able to at least inflict severe damage on an enemy before they are annihilated by a nuclear counterstrike. So a partial application of the MAD doctrine, and this is according to a 2019 analysis by the Department of Defense. Now, although no one has tested this concept of mutual assured destruction by nuclear weapons, it seems to have prevented war between superpowers since nuclear weapons being invented in the 1940s. But it's also led to periods of the Cold War. Both the U.S. and Soviet Union spent huge amounts of money to develop nuclear weapons and methods to use them. So despite these, you know, all these treaties that have been passed since World War II on you know, controlling arms uh, development in the nuclear weapons uh, realm, the United States and Russia continue to rely on mutually assured destruction. Political and technological developments over the last five years have increased the risk that a nuclear exchange could occur. The relationship between the United States and Russia, which are the world's two nuclear superpowers, has deteriorated into dis, dis, you know, deep disagreement over inter-alia arms control issues, cyber issues, other forms of interference in each other's internal affairs. You've heard me talk about you know, this in 2016, 2020 election. Obviously, Ukraine, and just the principles of international conduct. Now, with controlled flight hypersonic weapon delivery systems, will also increase the risk to deterrence because this shortens the reaction time to a real or a perceived attack. I've done an episode about these hypersonic weapons before. The fixes of greater automation or swifter human reaction do not provide much comfort when one real, you know, recognizes the near misses of the past. You know, we've clo- got very close to the brink to nuclear war. Potentially, we're getting closer to it now in this context of the, the war in Ukraine. And then additional, American nuclear deterrent strategist that currently worry that Russian and Chinese policymakers are prepared to consider using nuclear weapons in early but not often. That means that they might use a limited strike to get the United States to stand down and surrender under a policy of escalate to win. It's also known as escalation to de-escalate. China is building a large number of new missile silos, although it remains unclear whether the intention is to expand the country's offensive capabilities or just to complicate a potential attacker's plans. These developments have increased the risk of mutually assured destruction might fail. So with superpowers around the world, or excuse me, at least between the United States and Russia, having several thousand nuclear weapons, in addition, we've got these other countries with their nuclear arsenals. I wanted to leave this comment about the, the war in Ukraine because what many have asked NATO to do is to um, support Ukraine in a way that they're just unwilling to do, whether that's a no-fly zone or perhaps even sending uh, NATO troops on the ground. And NATO's not willing to do that. Ukraine is, in fact, not a NATO member. There's a whole bunch of reasons why. We've talked about that before. The point is, if, in my view, if you're a country that doesn't have a concrete bilateral agreement with the United States or other Western powers and a defense agreement, 
and you see the reaction that the world has had to Russia invading Ukraine. Certainly, Russia's economy is getting crushed. Um, they're not even winning this war, even though they're causing severe damage and killing Ukrainians. They will be ostracized and a pariah globally for several years, decades perhaps, all because of this one invasion. That being said, if you're a country without a nuclear weapon and you see China as a threat, for example, or even Iran in that region as a threat, to me it's a real possibility that you're pursuing a nuclear weapon yourself as a deterrent because the world sees Ukraine doing its best to defend itself against Russia and thinking, well, if Ukraine only had a nuclear weapon, perhaps Russia would not have invaded. They could have defended themselves with that threat, saying, you come across our border, we'll, we'll throw a nuclear tactical nuclear weapon at you and kill your 100,000 soldiers you put on the border. This is a real consideration that policymakers uh, think about when cr- creating plans for war. And so this would lead the world to see, frankly, an arms race for nuclear weapons, which is nothing the world needs by any means, more nuclear armed countries. But with this concept of mutually assured destruction, it could provide a safety blanket to some countries from potential invasion of a stronger, more dominant power. And I want to move to kind of a closing out of where could we go moving forward as a as a world, as nuclear powers inter- in, engage between one another, what options are there? Uh, again, Raymond Smith for War on the Rocks outlines two possibilities that could change the, the nature of nuclear war. One being more, a more likely scenario, mutually assured security, and then a less likely scenario, which is total nuclear disarmament. So let's go through them. Mutually assured, security, uh, mutually assured security. The objective of mutually assured security is to keep the risk of nuclear exchange very low, while greatly decreasing the consequences should a nuclear exchange occur. So it would do this by ensuring that neither side can inflict catastrophic damage on the other. Keyword catastrophic. Basically, you're swapping out offensive weapons for more defensive weapons. So this approach to nuclear deterrence would wouldn't entail zero risk, you know, as complete nuclear disarmament ideally would, but it would be a low risk and would dramatically reduce the consequences of deterrence failure. The thinking is no rational actor would launch a nuclear attack that is doomed to fail. So if countries agreed, hey, we're going to go from like Russia, the United States, we're going to go from our say 4,000 nuclear weapons each down to like 100. But we're going to agree we're both going to spend a lot more money on defensive capabilities in case one country or the other decides to launch one of those 100 nuclear weapons. We can have a better chance of defending ourselves. So that's the thought process there, making just a more mutually assured security. Now, comparing that to just nuclear disarmament, which is the least likely of the two, the fundamental problem you know, with nuclear disarmament, it, it lies in how, how do you get to a world with no nuclear weapons. And this is what they call the nuclear dilemma. And there really doesn't appear to be a credible path from the current strategic system to the elimination of all nuclear weapons. You know, as such systems decrease to small numbers, like such nuclear weapons 
go from, say, between Russia and the United States, several thousand, just uh, several hundred, the incentives to cheat and cheat that agreement, they rise exponentially. And on the other side, so do the risk to those who are not cheating. So this is a fascinating topic. We haven't seen a nuclear exchange since 1945, the United States launching those two atom bombs on Japan. And God willing, we never see nuclear weapons used in war before or again. Hopefully cooler heads prevail and diplomacy wins out. That being said, if we're looking at the conflict in Ukraine as a, a case study for what nuclear war could, I mean, could look like in a modern time, the biggest challenge I see is if a nuclear weapons used, say initiated by Russia inside of Ukraine, no one quite knows the next steps, what it will look like. There are strategies in place, um, of course. You know, the United States and NATO have their strategies, what they would do. But how far does it escalate? When does it stop? And how many people die in the, in the meantime? It is a gray area with no black and white, sadly. And this is why we hope that despite um, wars being unable to predict an outcome and they flow into um, a more of a, not always a victories or losses, but just kind of a muddling around something that we've seen in Ukraine, Russia not taking Kiev or Mariupol or these other cities, but having to withdraw their forces, move around. And this frustrating Russian policymakers, a number of their own generals have been killed on the front lines. All this to say, if Putin finds himself kind of in a box and frustrated and feeling like the West is antagonizing him by still delivering more weapons to Ukraine, that all, I think, lowers the bar of him thinking it's okay to use a nuclear weapon. And that is not the world we want to live in. So thanks for tuning in. As always, I hope you're picking up what I'm putting down. I am Matt Parker. This is Brief Before Impact.